You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, It's great to be with you. If you haven't met me before, my name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here. I felt so sad when the Queen passed away. Uh, She was a great queen and a remarkable woman, uh, a woman of substance and dignity. I don't mind telling you, I I genuinely mourned her passing and I found myself wanting to honour her somehow. So I watched the funeral, I changed the backdrop of my phone uh, to a picture of her. That was probably a little odd. My wife thought that was, was a bit strange. But why did I care so much? I think part of it was because she's always been there. Uh, She used to give out uh, letters to people once they'd reached 100 years of age. So she almost got to the stage where she could have sent herself a letter. Uh, Over the 70 years that she reigned, uh, 14 US presidents came and went, 179 prime ministers reigned uh, throughout uh, her realm uh, during that time, Uh, 17 here in Australia, although those stats were inflated a little bit when we had three prime ministers in three years uh, a little while ago. She reigned so long, in fact, that she had seven jubilees in her honour, the most recent, her platinum jubilee, just a few months before her death. So it's so strange not to have her around. Also, I think it was partly because of what she represents. Uh, I'm old enough now to feel like the world is getting worse and that everything was better in the past. And the Queen somehow represents that to me. She has this connection to a better time. 
a time of uh, greater dignity and, and respect and decorum and all of those things. Not that she was perfect, not that the past was perfect, but she did have this wholesomeness about her that was a reminder of the past. But I suppose the other reason why I mourned her passing was thinking about what's next. I mean, Charles. <laughs> uh, look, I have some sympathy for Charles for decades he has been the heir to the throne. And it must be very difficult spending your entire life waiting to be what you were born to be. But it still doesn't feel right that he's now coming on. It's so weird to say King Charles rather than Prince Charles, and there's so many new things to get used to. The day after the Queen died, uh, Queen's councils became King councils, KCs rather than QCs, and it just doesn't sound right. And soon we'll have coins with his head on it rather than his mother's. It's also strange getting used to all of these things, but that's what happens when a great leader, uh, the impact that they make. They fill a role so much that they define it, and then they leave a hole, a void, that you can't imagine anyone else filling. Uh, often the person who comes afterwards is totally forgettable or ruins everything. Uh, I mean, who came after Abraham Lincoln? No one can remember that, or Winston Churchill or Napoleon, Alexander the Great had an empire that spread from Italy all the way through to India, but it was fractured and broken up by uh, those who followed after him. If you're a sports fan, you know what happened to the Chicago Bulls after Michael Jordan retired or to Manchester United when Alex Ferguson retired. Great leaders make an indelible impact and leave an enormous hole when they leave. How do you replace them? How do you follow on from them? And that's really the context of the book of Joshua. Today we begin this new series, this new book, and we find ourselves here in this precarious moment for God's people. They are on the edge of the land that God had promised them, but Moses, the great leader, the great hero who had led them there, has just passed away. And now this new guy, Joshua, must take his place. And the future of God's people hangs in the balance. So they're wondering how it will go, how the transition will go. Will all of these things come to pass? To understand all of the drama of this, we kind of need to go all the way back to the origin story of God's people. So for the next little while, do a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, back in Genesis 12, in the first book of the Bible, about 2000 BC, uh, God comes to a bloke that we know as Abraham and makes a covenant with him that's loaded up with promise. Go from your country, he says, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There's three great promises that God is making here. First, God will make of Abraham a great nation then he'll give this nation a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey, we're told later on. And thirdly, he will make them a blessing to the rest of the world. So a nation, a land and blessing. This is the founding moment of the nation of Israel and it shapes everything that follows. And in the rest of the book of Genesis, we see God's people uh, grow and develop and multiply. And so at the start of Exodus, we're told that they had increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Uh, this actually ends up a bad thing for them because the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, uh, gets worried about them and so enslaves them. But even here, God is true to his promises and then he comes to this guy Moses and calls Moses to bring the people up out of Egypt in what we call the Exodus. And so he commissions Moses to do this. He starts very tentatively, but then he becomes the leader that God's people need. 
a man who confronts the Pharaoh with boldness and clarity and then brings down miraculous uh, judgments on those who would resist him and then leads God's people right out of, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea and into a place called uh, the Sinai Desert where they meet with God on Mount Sinai. And at this moment, everything looks like God's promises to Abraham are about to come true. They're now a great people, a great nation. They're enormous. Uh, when they're at Mount Sinai, they receive the law from God, which becomes like a constitution for them, setting them up as a nation. And now they're also just on the cusp of receiving the promised land, of entering the promised land, this land that God had given to them. Everything is there. It's just on the horizon. But then it all falls apart. See, just as they're about to enter the land, they fall back in fear. In one of the first books of the Bible, Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 13, God tells Moses to send out some spies to do a bit of a reconnaissance mission of the land before they enter in. He tells them, go around the land, see what it's like, and then report back. And so they do this. There's 12 spies sent into the land and they come back. And most of them come back with this, this message that the land is beautiful. We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. However, they say, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. The land through which we've gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They say that we, we felt like grasshoppers in front of them. And so they say, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And the people freak out. They turn back. In fact, they, they're so scared that they, they want to go all the way back to Egypt. They try and almost overthrow Moses so they can go back. They're terrified. But God is deeply offended. See, he has led them here to this place. He's, he's shown his miraculous power again and again. And so he says, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Like how many more times do they have to know that I'll look after them, that I'll, that I'll get rid of those enemies, I'll lead them? And so he decides, he makes this, uh, this judgment on the people. Numbers 14, he says that anyone 20 years and up who've grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make them dwell. So he says, if they're not willing to go into the land, I'm actually going to bar you from it. And so for the next 40 years, that whole generation of people wanders through the desert, this kind of purgatory waiting to receive the punishment that God has, which is actually that they will be barred from the land. They never get to enter it. It's such a tragedy. It's, it's right there. It's, they're right on the border of the promised land. It's stretching out in front of them. But because of their lack of faith and their disobedience, they're barred from it. In fact, even Moses is. He leads the people so faithfully, but right near the end, he loses faith, disobeys God, and he too is barred. And so that's where we get to right here at the start of the book of Joshua. God's people are on the brink of the promised land, but Moses is gone and everything is up for grabs. Moses is dead, how will he be replaced? Yes, he had that late stumble, but he was still an extraordinary man. Deuteronomy 34 says, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was, he was like a friend with God. He had done great signs. He had shown them great things. He'd taught them. He'd led them. He'd been faithful. He'd been their judge all of these years. 
So how do they replace him? Uh, just before his death, he had asked God to raise up a shepherd to lead the people and God had directed him to this man, Joshua. But will Joshua be able to fill his sandals, so to speak? Will he be the same kind of leader? Can, can we trust that he will be as good a leader? And what about the land? It's beautiful, but it's massive. If you were to look at a modern map, it would encompass all of Jordan, Lebanon and Kuwait, half of Iraq, parts of Saudi Arabia and Syria. Like this is a huge land. But how will they just walk in and take it? I mean, there's all of these fortified cities. There's these great nations with warriors. Won't they defend it? And Israel is just a group of shepherds, nomads, who've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. How will they know how to, to claim these lands? How will they know how to fight? As one writer says, from a human standpoint, it is a huge, if not impossible, undertaking. So this is a crucial, pivotal moment in Israel's history. There's all of this promise and hope, but also so many questions and doubts. Will Joshua be the leader that they need? Will the people follow? Will the land be taken? Will this generation be any different, any better than the one that has just passed? And in a moment like this, they need clarity and conviction. Really, what they need is encouragement. And that really becomes the theme of this chapter. I like that word, encourage. Warren Wiersbe says, to encourage literally means to put heart into. You know, encourage, to, to give courage to someone. And that really becomes the theme of this chapter. First of all, we see how God encourages Joshua, then how Joshua encourages the people, and then finally how the people encourage Joshua. First, let's have a look at how God encourages Joshua. Uh, as I said before, uh, God had already commissioned and set apart Joshua to be the leader, and really he'd been preparing him all his life for this role, just like Prince Charles. Uh, as this book starts, Joshua is not a young man. He's probably about 70 years old. And from his youth, though, we're told that he has been an assistant of Moses, verse 1. Uh, he'd kind of been his trusted aide for decades and walked alongside him. This was a role reserved for someone of great character. But he wasn't just an aide, he was also a military commander. In Exodus 17, as God's people have just come out of the land of Egypt, uh, there's this tribe called the Amalekites who swoop down on God's people and the, it looks like they're going to destroy them. And Joshua rises up as this great commander and we're told that he overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, there's a miraculous element to this. It's clear that it's God's strength that's working there. But Joshua becomes this kind of hero, this leader who emerges. He experiences God's power there. And then he experiences God's presence. I mentioned before that Moses led the people to Mount Sinai and then uh, went up the mountain to receive God's law, the Ten Commandments and the other laws that God had for them. Well, Joshua actually accompanied him. Uh, he was sort of there off on the side as God met with Moses. And so he had this sense of God's greatness, of his immensity and his holiness. That also meant that Joshua was separate from the people's sin. Uh, you might remember that while Moses was up the mountain, the people started uh, started worshipping a golden calf down below. Well, Joshua wasn't a part of that. He wasn't around, and so he was separate from that. And you actually wonder if that would have happened at all if Joshua had been around because he's a man of great conviction and firmness. 
I mentioned earlier that that moment where the spies were sent into the land, the, Joshua was actually one of those spies, but he saw things very differently. And when the spies came back with their pessimistic report, there was two spies who said something different, a guy called Caleb and Joshua. When everyone else was freaking out, they stood up and they urged the people to have faith. Numbers 14, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land, they say. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. So don't fear the people of the land. We'll, we'll be able to take them. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see the clarity of his faith there. He was absolutely sure that if this was God's promised land for them, then God would come through on his promise. But the people are so angry and scared that they actually threatened to stone Caleb and Joshua. So we see that he, he learns that choosing the path of virtue can put you offside with others, but not with God. You see, God would honour Caleb and Joshua for their faith. I said before that God had decreed that that whole generation wouldn't enter the promised land. Well, there's two exceptions. God says that Caleb and Joshua will enter the land because, he explains, they have wholly followed the Lord, Numbers 32. Because of his faithfulness, God still permits him to enter the land. And yet, for all of that, Joshua still had to suffer. He's probably about 30 when he spies out the land. And for the next 40 years, he has to wander along in the, in the wilderness. Even harder for him because he knows what it's like. He can remember the taste of the fruit. He knows how much better that land is than this desert. And also, you consider the sadness that he had to go through, seeing his family and his companions, each one, dying till none of them are left. And yet for all of this, God is preparing him. And now at the start of Joshua, God comes to him to provide new and fresh encouragement, to put heart into him. I want you to see, first of all, in this passage, verse 1, we see that God speaks to Joshua directly. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, it's a special honour for God to speak to anyone in the Old Testament. It's a, a thing that he reserves for the great leaders generally, for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Moses, and now for Joshua. He's affirming Joshua in his position as a leader. And then he gives him a very clear mission. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over the Jordan and take the land. He tells them to, to lead the people across the promised land and then he offers him this incredible promise that they will be successful. Verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. And there's this almost this Lion King moment where it's like anything that where the sun touches, that will be yours in verse 4. That's the kind of impression. God is laying it all out for him and promising that it will happen. No one will be able to stand before you, verse 5. That's because, ultimately, it's their inheritance. Verse 6, you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. It's, it's, it's as good as theirs already. It's their right. God has bequeathed it to them. Now they just need to go and grab it. 
And then most importantly, God promises Joshua his presence. Verse 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This really is the key promise. See, God's presence is the promise that makes all of the other promises doable, impossible. God's presence had been with his people as they came up out of Egypt During the day, he would be with them in a cloud of a pillar of cloud. At night, there was a pillar of fire, always reminding them of God's presence. And then God had given his presence in special ways to his leaders throughout the start of the Bible. And now he's promising that same presence to Joshua. And that promise is the force for every other promise, whether it's land or a nation or prosperity. All of those things are possible if God is with you. The emphasis here is not you can do this, but I will do it for you. I will give it to you. As one writer puts it, without God's presence, Joshua has everything to fear, but with it, Joshua need fear nothing. Joshua needs this encouragement. He needs this heart to be put into him. And so God does that with these promises. And then he calls him to respond. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. At one level, this could be read as a a kind of a call to arms. Uh, They're about to enter this land and they will need a physical strength to do that. They're going to be taking on these enormous armies, these great big cities. They will need a certain kind of physical courage to go into that land. But there's something deeper here a spiritual level, because do you see what the strength and the courage is tied to? It's God's law. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. See, God doesn't just need them to have a physical courage. He's actually wants them to focus on having a spiritual courage, a strength of character and conviction to follow God's law. Now, this law that God is referring to here is what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are hot off the press when Joshua is around. It's, it's written by Moses, so it's just been written, literally, like in the wilderness has been written, and now it's been passed on to Joshua. And in this law, there's kind of three big elements. First of all, there's instructions. There's the law. There's the Ten Commandments. There's 613 laws that God gave his people. Now he says to Joshua, I want you to study these. But beyond that, there's also the stories, the history of God's people, of the patriarchs, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of these figures, of of Joseph in Egypt. There's all of these amazing stories and promises. Now, God is giving all of this to Joshua. He's saying, I want you to study this. This law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. One writer imagines him hunched over God's law, his eyes riveted on every syllable in order not to miss any detail. It's to become his guide so that he doesn't go to the right or to the left. He's always focused on God's truth. It means, David Jackman writes, that there's never a moment when whatever decision has to be made, the book of God is not in the driver's seat. That's what God is giving to Joshua. So here, I want you to follow this, but this will require strength and courage. 
You see, it takes strength to follow God's way. Uh, we know that God's way is right, but our instincts often fight against it. We know that we shouldn't be selfish, we shouldn't lie, all of those things, but our hearts resist that. So there has to be a strength of character to choose the right way, and then there has to be this courage to hold firm, particularly as a leader. So Joshua will will tell the people, will teach the people God's law, and some people won't respond to it well, and so he has to stand strong. He has to be courageous. As the leader of God's people, Joshua is responsible for guiding the people, not just into the land, but in the way of God's instructions. So he must be fierce in keeping God's law. He must be strong and courageous. And as he does this, as he studies the law, he'll also see why it works. You see, the the law isn't just instructions, it's also history, isn't it? And it's also promise. And so as he studies the stories of the patriarchs, he'll see that it always works. Whenever they seek to do God's will, whenever they obey God, blessing follows. And so Joshua needs to teach the people that too, the wisdom and the goodness of God. But here, really, I think is the key to understanding this whole book. We're going to hear about lots of bold, dramatic battles. There's going to be a a, a great test of God's people. Will they have faith and will they follow and will they step into the land with great uh, courage? They'll need that at a physical level, but even more they need it on a spiritual level. If they want God's physical strength to accompany them, then they need to uh, show spiritual strength. They need to obey him. And for the rest of this chapter and even the book, we see how Joshua responds to this call. First of all, we see how Joshua encourages the people. In verse 10, he calls together the leaders of the people and he tells them, right, it's time to go. We're going to do this thing. We're going to take this land that God has for us. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting heart into them. He's encouraging them. They are probably doubting and wondering, will Joshua be able to lead us? What happens? What's going to happen now that Moses is gone? Here, Joshua is giving them heart. He's saying, God's law, God's word says that we will claim this land, so let's go about it. And then we do see him down in verse 12. He, he goes to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. Uh, these tribes are actually uh, what we call the Transjordanian tribes, cool name. But basically there's this great big river, the River Jordan, and God's people right now are on this side, the east side of the river. They're going to have to cross over to the west side into the promised land. But these three tribes have already had the land that God has allotted for them, right? So everyone else has their land over here. They've already got the land that God has promised them. And so there is a danger that they could say, oh, we'll just stay here while the rest of the people go off and do their battles, we'll just stay here in comfort. But God's law had said that that's not how they were supposed to do it. In Numbers 22, God had said that all of you have to go over, every tribe has to go over, and you can't rest until everyone has rest. Again, Joshua is pointing to the law. God told him to teach the people the law and to hold firm to God's truth, and now he's doing that. He's saying, guys, we're all in this together, all for one, one for all. And they respond with commitment. 
That's what we see. The people encourage Joshua. Verse 16, they answer Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. They accept this. They embrace it. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord be with you as he was with Moses. And then finally in verse 18, they say, only be strong and courageous. They probably didn't realise that these were the very words that God had said to Joshua. But you can imagine the confirmation that Joshua had when he heard that. Here, he's heard it from God and now he hears it from the people. The call to this spiritual courage and strength. And more than that, he sees that the people are ready. This is a people who have learned the lessons of the past generation. They've realised that they need to step out in faith. They need to obey God. They're ready to do what God has called them to do. Well, we're only just starting this book of Joshua, but if I can give you a spoiler alert, what we see here will keep going, will keep happening. What we see here is so much that is encouraging. Joshua has been called to be a man of conviction, to fiercely obey God's law, and that becomes one of the themes of the book. Chapter 11, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He stayed focused on God's truth. And then he taught the people to do it as well. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly. Joshua chapter 8. And the people responded in obedience. They followed after God. They did the right thing. And so God drove out their enemies and gave them rest. And so this book is this example of what happens when God's people follow God's way. Blessing follows. So as we come towards a close, what, what do we learn from all this? How, how do we apply this to us? Well, at the basic level, this is a reminder, a call to obedience, to humble, fierce conviction, to being people of strength and courage who faithfully follow God because there is a promise of blessing when we do. If we follow God, he will honour that. And yet, of course, that's a bit of a problem because if you know your own heart or you know the history of God's people, this is the very thing that we find so hard to do. See, the book of Joshua is a very encouraging book. It's one of the few times in the Bible, really, where God's people consistently do the right thing. And yet even then, we're still going to see that they make their fair share of mistakes. There's moments where they lack trust, where they disobey, where they fall short even Joshua himself. And then straight after Joshua, everything falls apart. The, the book that comes after Joshua is Judges. And we're told in Judges chapter 2, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And they end up turning away from God. They abandoned the Lord, we're told, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They provoked the Lord to anger. In fact, by the end of the book, we're told that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the very thing that the people of Joshua's age had been so careful to do is forgotten immediately. God's people had 
followed his way and Joshua had led them, hadn't gone to the right or to the left, but as soon as he was gone, the people lost their way. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see that the pattern recurs again and again. God's people continually disobey. The leaders who are supposed to lead them end up uh, turning them away rather than showing strength and courage. They show selfishness and timidity and weakness. And all of the things that God had blessed God's people with, he takes away. Eventually, he even takes away this precious land that they had. And we see the same pattern in our own time, don't we? When God's people dedicate themselves to obedience, good things happen. Churches thrive. People grow. The wider society is blessed and changed when God's people are faithful. And good leaders are generally at the forefront of this. But it works the other way as well. When God's people wander and compromise, we lose our way, we lose our influence, and all too often leaders are responsible for this, revealed as hypocrites. So it takes strength and courage to obey God in our age and any age, and very often we lack it. And so we're constantly looking for a better leader, someone else who can lead us in God's truth and way, and we follow. And that's thankfully what we get. You see, 1,500 years after Joshua, a little boy was born in Bethlehem. He was given the name Yeshua, which is Hebrew for Joshua. Or in Greek, you say it, Aeusus, Jesus. Either way, the name means God is our salvation. God saves because that is what Jesus came to do. You see, we can try to keep God's law, but we always fall short. We always lack the strength and the courage that we need. Romans 3 says that none is righteous. No, not one. We've all turned aside. No one does good, not even one. But Jesus came to make up for that. He came to keep the law on our behalf. And we see his life reflect this. He, he, he approaches God's law and commits himself, dedicates himself to keeping God's law. As a boy, he studied God's word. In Luke 2, we find him as a little kid debating with the teachers of the law. Like he, he's already seeking out God's truth. And it's not just for debates, it's not just for knowledge, it's for life. He says that he came, John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's, he's constantly trying to follow the right path, even when that path led to the cross. You see, our sin demands justice. When wrong is done, there has to be justice. There has to be a response from God. But the glorious news of the Christian gospel is that that judgment, that justice, isn't poured out on us, but it's poured out on Jesus. See, Jesus learned obedience all the way to the cross. 2 Corinthians says, uh, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. All of our sin, all of the stuff that we've done wrong, all of the ways in which we've fallen short and missed the mark, that is put on to Jesus and he deals with it. He takes the judgment 
fulfills the justice that is required. And then all of the good that he had done, the perfect keeping of the law, is placed on our account. He who had no sin was made sin. We who are sinful, God makes righteous. So that when God looks at you and me, if we've chosen to trust him, God doesn't see what we've, what we've failed to do. God sees what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus has done. And because Jesus was obedient, he inherited God's promises. God made those great promises to Abraham, didn't he? A people, a land, and blessing. And he made the same kinds of promises to Jesus, a people, a land, and blessing. In Matthew 28, Jesus, after his resurrection, tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. See here what Jesus is saying. God, because Jesus was obedient, God has given him a people, disciples. And it's a land, but it's not a physical land. It's not a physical territory. It's a spiritual land, a spiritual kingdom. All authority has been given to him, so go out into the whole world. God will get people for himself, a nation from every tribe and tongue. Jesus has been given this. And then there's blessing in Jesus. Ephesians 1 says that, that if we are in Christ, if we're trusted in Christ, then we have every spiritual blessing in him. This is what Jesus has won for us. He was faithful. He was obedient. And so he won these promises. He won you. He won me. And he won all of this stuff that he wants to give us. We're going to explore this a lot more over the coming weeks. What does it look like to walk in these promises? But let me finish tonight just by this recognition that Jesus has done everything to inherit you. That's what he died for, to save you and to claim you. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross and the joy that Jesus had set before him was us. We are his inheritance. We are his great joy. He was faithful so that he could have us. And now he invites us to place our faith in him, to follow him to walk with him, to walk with him in strength and courage, but also to recognise that even when we fail to do that, he never did. He was always strong. He was courageous. He followed the truth. He did God's will. And now he has us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the start of this book. We thank you that there's so much in this book that we can learn and we ask that we will learn so much over the coming months. Lord, help us to be people of spiritual strength and courage, people of conviction who follow you. Lord, we know though that we won't do this perfectly and so we are so thankful that Jesus did do it perfectly and we entrust ourselves to him. We entrust ourselves to your grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you did this for the joy set before you. Thank you that you did everything to inherit us, your people, your disciples, disciples from every nation and tongue. We commit ourselves to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.